Hi, everyone, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience research podcast. Today, we're talking to Heidi Meyer, who is assistant professor in the Psychological and Brain Sciences Department and the Center for Systems Neuroscience at Boston University. Heidi studies effective learning, behavior, and brain circuits underlying those things. I mean, effective with an A, not effective with an E. It's just my accent that makes them sound like the same word. And she studies how these behaviors and brain circuits change during adolescence. Research in her lab is currently focused on behavioral inhibition, and especially inhibition and fear and anxiety. I suppose that's what we'll talk about today. And I should say new lab, actually, because she's just setting up her own new lab at BU. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for joining us, Heidi. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So joining us today is Tony Bogos-Robles. Tony oh. is our own expert on affective learning. That's what they say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and our uh, all-purpose all podcast uh, uh, friend, Matt Wanett. Howdy. And me, I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. So, Heidi, it's an opinion shared by many that adolescents are emotionally volatile. And it's sometimes assumed that this must have a neurobiological basis, but it seems daunting to try to study it in ourselves. So what can we learn about this from studying experimental animals, and what do we already know about it from that study? Can we even decide what time in the life of an experimental analog animal is the analog of adolescence in humans? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think there, absolutely, we have been able to identify a period that we're deeming to be akin to adolescence in rodents. There's some speculation of whether, you know, adolescence is a very social construct. There are certainly experiences that the human teenager has that a rodent is not likely to have. But there's a lot of benchmarks um, from the physical to, you know, growth spurts, puberty, hormone changes that map on to a certain time frame and rodent adolescence that we also see in humans. And then there's also major differences in social and emotional behaviors. So there's this significant shift from a focus on the caregiver, the, the dam, the mother that they've lived with for 21 days, <laughs> four weeks in the, in the case of a rodent, and then shifting to their conspecifics, so their peers as we see in humans, this kind of focus once you enter middle school, high school, that gets you to focus more on your peers and your parents. Um, other things like exploring the environment more, maybe taking a few more risks. And all of these behaviors track, they're very similar species-specific versions of them, of course, in rodents, but really all kind of match up to the idea that adolescence is this time when you are working to sample the environment and preparing to go out on your own, preparing to be able to be interacting with new people, new environments, um, and kind of adapted to anything that you might encounter. And we see a lot of similarities in terms of rodents and humans in that regard. So in rodents, it's a much shorter period, which makes it easier to study than in humans. It's about three weeks, postnatal day 30 to postnatal day 50 is the approximate range. Um, so I think that's a huge benefit for, for rodent researchers because we can get a lot of information about these rapidly changing brain circuits and these behaviors in a span of three weeks. We don't have to wait up to potentially close to a decade um, as we would in humans to see similar changes. Does it map onto brain development? The human brain continues to grow through adolescence and then yeah. shrinks? Uh, <laughs> <Or> <laughs> does, that, does that happen? Yeah. <laughs> I think certainly there are markers that absolutely map on. So one of the probably biggest ones that many people have heard about is that the prefrontal cortex is continuing to develop throughout adolescence. 
Um, it goes until the, the very end of adolescence and sometimes even beyond in humans. The prefrontal cortex we know continues to develop until 25 years old. So that would be well after what you know, we as society sort of deem to be the end of adolescence. And similarly in rodents, prefrontal is developing through late 50s, um, late 50 days in some cases. And alongside that, there's also sooner development of other regions, so more emotional regions like the amygdala, like the nucleus accumbens. Um, so that kind of leads to a lot of these canonical adolescent behaviors that we see where you have this potentially increased emotional drive driven by the amygdala, driven by the nucleus accumbens with slightly less input from the prefrontal cortex to tamp down those responses. So you get a lot of these emotionally charged behaviors. Um, I do want to point out, though, that um, so adolescents, they, they kind of have a bad rap <laughs> as being you know, risk-taking, kind of like this period where they're just hard to control, like what's going on there? Um, but I think it's really important to say that the, the brain is actually hardwired for the experiences that they're having. They're taking more risks because they're exploring new environments. They have to learn new things in order to like leave the nest in the case of a rodent. But you know, meet, meet peers, meet, meet friends, um, learn things, get away from kind of the, the home environment um, and prepare for independence. Um, so a lot of the things that we deem to be risky or affectively charged are actually really just the adolescent doing exactly what they're supposed to do during that time. So I think that's yeah. my little soapbox that I have to stand on. So a lot of what you were saying about the amygdala driving this mm -hmm. and the cortex doing that, that's not based on human research that's probably based mainly on animal research. So what's the nature of the evidence I think there's, that you're There's certainly to? both. Um, there's parallels in functional neuroimaging. There's also, I mean, post, unfortunately, postmortem studies in humans that have allowed us to really kind of map the trajectory of, of brain region development. Um, a lot of the more nuance of the structural connectivity and the functional connectivity, so how brain regions communicate with one another, um, how that changes across development is certainly easier to do in rodents because you can really get in there and interrogate circuits with um, techniques that allow you to actually record from very specific projections or specific cell types and um, increase their activity, decrease their activity in a very targeted way. So, mm -hmm. I, But I would absolutely say there's a combination of both human and um, rodent and among other animals research that has led to what we know. So what do we know? <laughs> Not nearly enough. <laughs> I mean, I'm making a career out of studying this, yeah. so hopefully we don't know it all yet. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if I can kind of jump into my own yeah, research. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as I've sort of already alluded to, we have these regions that are potentially really primed to respond to emotionally significant stimuli. And this can be reward stimuli. This can be also fear stimuli. Um, you mentioned anxiety disorders. Certainly in many cases, if your response to a fear stimulus goes into overdrive, you may experience an anxiety disorder. They're unfortunately very, very common, even in, especially actually in adolescent populations. Um, peak, I think, diagnosis age is around 13 years old. So it's much younger than we would even want to think anxiety is becoming an issue. Um, but my work actually kind of comes at that from a different perspective. So there is this this notion that's founded by behavior that's also based on the brain where adolescents are responding to fear stimuli very, very strongly. So they're exhibiting high fear responses, they're exhibiting anxiety. But my work comes in kind of from a different perspective of what about something adjacent to fear or the antithesis of fear, something like safety? This can be emotionally charged. Safety can have rewarding properties. It certainly 
um, represents the absence of threat. So is that something that also could be emotionally charged in the same way? Might the adolescent brain actually be primed to respond to something that's explicitly safe in the environment in a way that the adult brain can certainly recognize and use safety, but there may actually be advantages to, to identifying and training adolescent mice and eventually teenagers to to, to um, discriminate what around them is actually safe and use that to help it regulate their emotions. Um, so that's a lot of what my work is interested in is recording from different brain regions under conditions of threat. So it's a stimulus in our case, it's you play a tone for a mouse, you pair it with a mild foot shock, they become afraid of that tone, or you pay a, play a second tone that's never paired with a foot shock so they learn that that second tone is safe. And we're able to, to then look at differential activity in brain regions to those two stimuli and kind of get at what is the seat of that form of safety in, in the brain. If I can jump in, um, perhaps I can ask a silly question, but perhaps, you know, for the folks out there that yeah. will see the, and listen to the podcast, um, what is the importance in the first place of having all this uh, fear and anxiety signals, and on top of that, because they become problematic in a certain mm -hmm. uh, number of individuals in the population, then new functions of the brain need to be developed like safety signals in order to control those that are becoming becoming problematic. Yeah. Isn't better or perhaps, you know, something, an error that happened in nature uh, throughout evolutionary processes that, you know, spike this fear anxiety signals? Yeah. Um I think, so fear is, is actually very, very adaptive. Um, there are tons of circumstances, even in your daily life, just kind of going out your front door trying to walk across the street. You see a car coming at you too quickly, you, you know, sort of have that immediate fear response. Um, and that allows you to, you know, engage a behavioral repertoire that allows you to stop at the crosswalk and not walk in front of the car. Um, I think if you're out, I don't know, we're in Texas, so I don't know the, the examples like what you have on hikes, but let's say we're in the Northeast, we're out on a hike, you see something on the ground like kind of long and skinny, you're like, is that a snake? You want to be afraid for a moment because you want to run away if we you have need those. to. Right. So, okay, so <laughs> and you see this But yeah, so you want to have that kind of immediate moment of just like being aware of your, your surroundings, having that like quick, like the fear system will provide this arousal that allows you to like act very, very quickly. Right. Um, overall, you know, mm -hmm. like combining all these functions together, perhaps, you know, like the overall umbrella function is behavioral flexibility so that you yeah. can adapt to all the, any challenges in the environment yeah. um, in a manner that will keep you safe, mm -hmm. will keep you, you know, behaving just normally in the environment without even been panicking or so afraid because so many threats yeah. uh, naturally occur in nature. Absolutely, yeah. I think there's, there's. I would challenge, I guess, our, our viewers, our listeners, all of us to kind of, throughout the day, think of things that like for a moment, you have this moment of like, oh no, like panic. Yeah, yeah. That's your fear response. That's a very adaptive fear response. Yeah. But just then also notice how quickly it, it, it tamps down and you're able to just continue going about your business. So mm -hmm. these are all very adaptive moments that allow you to go out into an unknown world safely. Mm -hmm. So you have yeah. all these like versatile experiences, yeah. but you're able to do them in a very safe manner. And that's the sort of baseline, like fear is adaptive, safety is adaptive. These circuits are absolutely in place. And then right. certainly I think the perspective that I come from is, is instances where maybe the fear is a little bit more than you would like it to be. And 
and then in very extreme yeah. cases, anxiety yeah. disorders. And it's an intriguing thought, you know, like an ex intriguing exercise that we all could do because we don't typically think about all the dangers that exist in our environments, and there's many if you mm -hmm. really stop and think <laughs> about all of them, right? Thing is that, you know, like, it just reminds me of like the earlier work by, you know, people like Joe Ledoux and other folks that uh, determined or realized that all these threat-like fear signals are even occur at unconscious levels, right? Yeah. You don't really need to think about those in order to react appropriately to those dangers. And I'm wondering, you know, like now that the field has been moving towards understanding other related functions like safety signals and how they interact with the threat signals, then I'm just asking, you know, uh, is actual consciousness required, you know, like to come up with a uh, response or giving an entire meaning of the entire situation with these more complex functions or do we know anything yet about that? Um, so your question is I, I guess I guess you know like um, just because these are like the earlier times within this safety learning field yeah. maybe not much has been done yet especially mm -hmm. you know like with humans you know a human can tell you yeah you know I had to put a lot more conscious effort in order to come yeah. up with the best solution that will give you know, give me the most safety, but in right. animals it's harder to... Well, in these experiments, you're not really asking your animal to overcome their fear, like to do something that they're afraid of in order to get a reward on the other side. Right, right. Yeah. the most Which beneficial is, thing, yeah. But instead, you give the animal like an easy choice, right? Yeah, get so in, in my test, it really shot. is... And they don't, they kind of, they get shocked either way, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so it's actually, it's a very controlled environment, and in that way, it. Um, doesn't recapitulate as much of the human complexity as, as additional experiments would because there are very few instances in which sort of a fear stimulus you know is forced upon you something bad happens and then another time a safety stimulus is forced upon you in most cases we do engage these cognitive processes we do identify for ourselves what do I know makes me feel safe potentially you carry something with you that makes you feel safe or if you're in a new environment um, or with a new group of people, you identify the person that makes you feel safe. You identify the part of the room that makes you feel safe or stimuli that tells you like yeah. this situation is not threatening. But those are things that you are actually kind of accessing when you need them in the moment. You kind of identify them and then utilize them at that time. It's not like you have a fear response and then you know a tone plays and you're like, oh, that car is not going to hit me because I hear this. Instead, you're tone. you see mm -hmm. you're projecting that cars. Yeah. A trajectory, mm -hmm. and at first it looks like it might be coming toward you, and then later you see that it's right. not. Yeah. And so that's pretty sophisticated calculation of the of the car's future mm. position. But it, but even but in these apparently simplistic models in animals, I think just the simplicity of the tasks kind of hide other processes that may be occurring, but we cannot actually quantify mm -hmm. or at least having come up with you know good solutions to quantify because for example you know like in similar tasks in which you know the animal is provided an option so that they can avoid or escape the danger you would imagine you know you as an individual as a human to think about 
you know, what if I do this and make predictions of the near future, right? And that involves, you know, more cognitive engagement and perhaps, you know, we don't... But do really rodents do that stuff? What was that? But rodents do that, don't they? Yeah, yeah, that's what I would imagine, you know, that a rodent would actually make those kind of uh, predictions uh, and integrate those in the calculation. So in your experiments, you, you ask the road to do that. <laughs> but it's, it's hard to, to quantify, and I guess, you know, right. like, we as a field, perhaps, you know, like, sh should come up with, you know, some clever solutions to try to do a deeper understanding of all these processes, which may seem simplistic, but I believe from at least, you know, yeah. that they are more complex that, than what we I think that's so. also kind of like the, the benefit, the pro, the aim of a lot of the animal research is to break a very complicated behavioral repertoire or emotion down into right. its component parts. And so, right. I mean, I st certainly study one aspect of safety. You study another aspect of safety. I think we've talked about how you're also studying safety, but potentially manifesting in a very different way. And so, like you know, what is safety? That is a very complex question. Right. So one of the things I guess, yeah. if you could probably uh, touch on to those who are not familiar with your work is, you know, how you are sort of trying to use the rodent model and, you know, potentially bridge that to sort of translationally relevant, you know, issues. I mean, I think something we've sort of been scooting around is, you know, fear can be adaptive and good, but it can also be problematic in the case of PTSD. Mm -hmm. And so how can we use, excuse me, um, you know, potentially safety signals to be able to reduce that, you know, pretty much strong association of a cue that's no longer associated with a bad outcome. And I mean, some of your work really elegantly sort of gets at potential strategies that might be able to be used uh, to weaken that association. I guess, could you sort of talk a little yeah, bit about definitely. that? Yeah, um, definitely. So, uh, I think what the sort of immediate thing is that the form of safety that I'm studying, there is this, this moment in time where the safety signals presented, the mouse is able to inhibit their fear kind of in that moment. Um, and what's what's nice about that, whether it's an externally played tone, like in my experiments, or a human who has identified their own safety signal, um, it allows you to kind of have a momentary, like a moment of solace where you can reevaluate your surroundings. So when you see something that, that you do deem to be threatening, it actually, like all of your attentional resources are employed to that thing. So it actually makes it more difficult to look around and say, what else in this environment might tell me that I'm safe? So if you have something where you can automatically say, like, let's bring down this physiological response, let's give us a moment to identify, is this a threat? How likely is it that this will actually cause something bad to happen, let me look around, let me engage other cognitive processes. So I think that's one way where something like a safety signal can potentially have strong value is just it gives you a moment to breathe <laughs> and to think and to remind yourself that like, yes, I am capable of coping with this situation. Um, and another study that we have is to use, um, it's an extinction paradigm in rodents, but it is has some um, similarities to exposure therapy in, in human clinical settings. So basically extinction as a model is something that you have, have been afraid of in the past, perhaps a tone in a, in a mouse that's been paired with a foot shock, is played repeatedly in the absence of a foot shock. So over time, the mouse will learn, this tone no longer predicts a shock, I should not be afraid of this. Um, this is a very effective means to reduce fear responding. There are some limitations over time. The fear response can return. Um, so what we've been playing around with is how can you modify that training, this extinction training, potentially introducing something like a safety signal to help 
make that learning stronger and make it so it's a little bit more long term. So one of our experiments actually compared mice underwent regular extinction training, um, several fear cues, no shocks, um, and then another group where we took out half the fear cues and replaced them with safety cues. So they do have half as many fear exposures. They also know how these intermittent safety cues and we did see that the memory later on, the, re the reduction in fear, actually was maintained um, for at least two weeks in, in, the, rodent, in the rodent life. Um, so it's kind of this idea of, again, can you have these emotionally salient fear-producing events, but, but kind of couch them amid experiences that allow you to tamp down that physiological response, feel safe, experience your safety signal, and might that actually lead to stronger extinction learning or stronger fear regulation across multiple domains? So to sort of follow up on that, and I mean, I'm talking out of my beep here, um, <laughs> but you know, so the safety signal that you're using is an intrinsically neutral stimulus. So it's just another tone that, you know, really the animal will, is, not, is associated, I'm not going to have a bad thing happen now. And I guess has anywhere either in the preclinical or in the clinical research sort of thought, well, what if we give something good? Yeah. You know, I mean, would that potentially be something that could, you know, hey, I'm hungry and get a food pellet. I know a lot of these studies aren't necessarily done under food deprivation, but yeah. um, is there potentially a way that you could have a rewarding stimulus? And so instead of it's just a, a safety cue, you know, that's neutral, what if we had a positive thing that was embedded on top of this cue that would that sort of serve to weaken, you know, or facilitate extinction and weaken the initial sort of association between the cue and the aversive outcome. Right. And again, talking completely out of speculation here, but it's curious you know, if we want to think about taking these preclinical models and, you know, translate it, you know, uh, you know, bench to bedside, if you will. Back in the day, counter conditioning, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of. Yeah, I mean, that is a really good question. I think counter conditioning is a good, good example. So mm. pairing something formally that was paired with something aversive is now actually paired with something positive or rewarding. Um, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure about the, the extent to which you could just like replace a safety signal with something rewarding. But it's to embed something maybe on top of that. So right. it's now instead of just tone, but a tone that gives, hey, a little bit of juice, you mm -hmm. know, and something that would be intrinsically rewarding. Is that something yeah. that potentially could facilitate, I guess, yeah. See, to me, Matt's experiment makes sense in terms of learning theory, mm -hmm. like classical learning theory, whereas your result doesn't. I mean, here's just another thing that's happening during yeah. extinction. It's completely unrelated. That other tone has no meaning, really, at mm -hmm. all. And, uh, and yet, it facilitates extinction. Right. So I will stop you, pause you there, and say that I don't think at this point, like in this point in our training, that we actually have a neutral stimulus anymore. Because yeah. the reason that I, that I call it sort of a safety signal and not just like, I mean, in the technical jargon, it would be a CS minus, a condition stimulus that doesn't have like value essentially. Um, because we have trained it so much and we really do overtrain these mice, they have a lot of experiences that contrast this safety cue with fear. So it's not only a neutral cue, it is actually something that's explicitly safe. And I think that's what's key. So if you just pull a new stimulus out of a hat, right. it wouldn't work, you think? Um, <laughs> Potentially, but then I also showed a study today from Joey Dunsmore that shows that if you do have something novel in place of uh, an aversive outcome, you actually do see similar benefits. So it's, I think there's a lot. It's intriguing to, to me, and I actually have the a similar question. You know, like mm -hmm. perhaps to grill you on this. You know, like why do you really think it's a safety signal, and perhaps not just you know like a meaningless you know cue in this case? Because you know, like. Yeah. 
to me, at least in, in the paradigms we use in my lab, animals are given the chance to experience something threatening, dangerous, and then they can do the behavioral correction because they already understand the meaning of the cue, right? And in that case, I would believe, yeah, you need to understand first that something is dangerous, but no longer is dangerous in order to give a safety meaning. Yeah. Um, is there any way you can disentangle that from your paradigm? Yeah, I think the, the test that we do where we give the mice the, both options, they have a fear cue and a safety cue played at the same time, um, and we see a reduction in fear in that instance. Right, I think that's right. kind of, right. that's our really our test for, it's a process called conditioned inhibition for any of the learning theory nerds right. in the audience. Um, but that's really our critical test because right. up until that point, it is just kind of, it's contrasted with fear, but we don't have any proof that right. it is anything more than just a neutral stimulus or a not, a not fear. Right. So that's our test to really say that it has these properties that are capable of reducing fear, even when you have the fear cube present. I like that explanation. It makes so much sense. And but I'm wondering then why mm -hmm. isn't the aversive uh, meaning of the CS plus being transferred to the CS safety minus when you combine the two? Well, so isn't I think that? I think it does sometimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know uh, I don't want to misquote. So I'm not going to say a name, but there is someone who has done work, and I think it was specifically in females, where they actually showed higher freezing to a safety signal after it had been in compound because there was this transference mm -hmm. of fear. So it kind of can go yeah. <laughs> either way. So that, I mean, yeah. in, in a controlled laboratory setting, that is something that you're risking. You're starting from a neutral situation, and you have this, you've it has developed safety properties through training but it can potentially just as easily lose those. So that's why if we're thinking of, you know, therapeutic applications, you'd want something that's a little bit more robust, <laughs> um, that you have more experiences with to really like amass that and secure that safe properties and also potentially the transference of safety into the domain of being rewarding. And there is some evidence to show that um, many safety signals also do activate parts of the brain that respond to reward. So I don't want to let you get away without talking about adolescence. <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. so, um, <laughs> so I was just thinking, uh, the kinds of experiments mm -hmm. you're talking about right now are, what's the difference between an adult and an adolescence along all of those phenomena that you just described, the extinction right. and the... Yes, uh, so the biggest difference is probably in the ability of a safety signal to facilitate extinction. Um, up until that point, discriminating fear from safety is very, very similar between adolescents and adults, um, even pairing them together for conditioned inhibition, that's also very similar between ages. Um, but there's something about then pulling out that safety cue and applying it in new situations, like putting it in with extinction or trying to train that safety cue to be aversive. So if you pair a shock with that safety cue, um, both of those processes tend to be more robust in adolescents. The safety properties of the safety cue actually persist to a greater extent than they do in adults. Um, so we'll see a stronger benefit of less fear recall later on um, in an adolescent who's had a safety signal intermixed with extinction. We'll see slower fear learning about a safety signal paired with a shock in an adolescent relative to an adult. So we think there's something just inherent about the way that the, the safety signal itself is represented in the brain that may actually be a stronger neural signature than during adulthood. 
um, which kind of relates back to how I st started into all this, which is the adolescent brain is hardwired to be responsive to emotional stimuli, so perhaps the safety signal falls into that category. So that's a, a kind of developmental thing you might see in the brain. Mm -hmm. You can look for that, right? I mean, you have a handle on what kind of experiment you could be. I'm, I'm asking you, <laughs> can, you can you find <laughs> can you find a difference in some the activity in some part of the brain or anything? Yeah, like that? Um, absolutely. So some of the work that that my lab is doing is looking at a part of the brain called the ventral hippocampus and its communication with the prefrontal cortex and specifically the prelimbic region of the prefrontal cortex. And this circuit is a structurally more connected during adolescence in mice. This has been shown, um, not yet shown in humans. And B, responds more. There's a higher neural activity in this circuit during presentations of a safety cube during adolescence than during adulthood. So it kind of goes along with what, what I've been saying about how there may be this potential that the brain is actually showing a, a, a heightened response to this condition of safety during adolescence um, and per perhaps because that's just the way it's, it's built basically it's structurally wired to be more responsive to something like a safety signal so this is a naive question but I mean if you know as sort of you've been framing it that you know juveniles and adolescents need to sort of be able to sample a lot and they need mm -hmm. to figure out what's good what's bad mm -hmm. do they exhibit sort of faster acquisition of you know fear related behaviors you know or you know i guess it's a difficult question to get at but could, you, could smaller intensity foot shocks can that give rise to sort of a higher level of freezing mm -hmm. in adolescents relative to adults knowing the fact that they're sort of you know, they might be feeling it more, uh, less, you know, fat and all that to sort of, uh, you know, numb the, the, the shock. But I guess, yeah, do we see faster learning in, in mm -hmm. adolescence? Um, yeah, in many, in many cases about individual cues. So a, a tone that's paired with a foot shock or a tone that's paired with a food pellet leads to kind of one-to-one -one associations, either rewarding or aversive. You do actually see stronger, steeper learning curves. So they acquire, you know, a freezing behavior faster. Um, fear conditioning is faster in adolescents than it is in adults. Um, they will like press a lever more or run to a, a food, food cup more to collect a food pellet when a tone plays um, than adults will. So they have like very strong initial learning about these emotionally, emotionally salient stimuli. Yeah. yeah. Um, another of your interests is the sex differences, right? And, you know, like from the standpoint of uh, a clinical perspective, yeah. uh, females, um, uh, the proportion of females uh, suffer anxiety behavior, uh, anxiety diseases are twice as many, right, as men. And um, I'm wondering, you know, what kind of differences perhaps in this ventral hippocampal prelimbic circuit may you may encounter or yeah. you're expecting to encounter uh, yeah. that would explain this uh, sex difference? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't have an answer yeah. for that right now. I think because um, we're only seeing kind of, I spoke earlier today about how this, the sex differences issue was really needs a lot more work yeah. done because there's differences between rats and mice right now. There's kind of differences between how safety is trained and how fear is trained. And we're seeing sex differences in some places and not in others. And I'm seeing potentially sex differences in adulthood, but not in adolescence. So mm -hmm. there's so much more to un yeah. unpack there before I can. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, you're absolutely right that it's I mean, anxiety disorders psychiatric disease in many instances is different between the sexes and so okay, it's so well, important to... Okay, well, I'll have you back. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know when you're ready to 
to give us an answer <laughs> yeah. to that one. And I guess, but, you know, a related question also is, you know, that you briefly touched today was to induce these uh, disease states by integrating um, uh, prolonged stress uh, paradigms. Yeah. And my guess is that we're um, not going to have time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, my, my, Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Just to finish the thought, I guess, you know, like her research will be becoming uh, more and more intriguing as, you know, she keeps yep. progressing in this, in all these aspects. Yeah, so, thank you. your new lab has a lot to do. Yeah. Yes. Oh, Thanks for joining us today, Heidi. To <laughs> thank you. And Tony and Matt. And uh, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.